Hi, welcome to Glam City. I'm Anna Clark. And I'm Tamsin Peach. Thanks for joining us this week again on Glam City, where we are continuing the Glam conversation. And for those of you who still don't know, Glam is this great little acronym that stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. And this show takes you behind the scenes of, of, of Sydney's cultural institutions and tries to tease out some of what goes into putting on history in the city. It's kind of like a WhatsApp for history nerds. A WhatsApp for history Or a WhatsApp for what's history nerds. Totes. This week will be our last show for the year and we could have no better guest than the wonderful Jackie Newling from Sydney Living Museums. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, thank you. Jackie is Sydney Living Museums resident gastronomer, holds a Le Cordon Bleu master's degree and specialises in food heritage. And in 2015, Jackie published Eat Your Histories, Stories and Recipes from Australian Kitchens and hosts the Colonial Gastronomy programs held throughout the year at many of the Sydney Living Museum's historic houses. Jackie is also one half of the Sydney Living Museum's food history blog, The Cook and the Curator. Welcome. Hi there. Building an appetite. Yeah, I know. <laughs> my mouth is already watering <laughs> at, this, uh, at this episode. Now, what, what, what is it to be a colonial gastronomer? That's a great title. That's fantastic. <laughs> is it up on Observatory Hill or where are we going with this? It's astronomer gastronomer. No, do, do. I know so many people look up at the stars and say, oh, I know you're a scientist. <laughs> Uh, no, gastronomy uh, to me, it's it's the study of food, um, but you know people think of you know it's this lofty sort of thing where you wine and dine and go to elegant restaurants. But to me, it's not that at all. It's really about what we eat, why we eat it, and often you know what we don't eat and why mm. we don't eat that. So it's really, you know, what, what's it taken to put that food on our plate? What does it mean to us? You know, uh, uh, it's ascribed values, it's social values, it's the cultural side of food. And how did you get into this really? fascinating area of history is it food your ba- background in food or is it a background in history or I guess I came into history sideways I always had a sort of a love for history and historic places particularly that real sense of place and I think that just came from you know my childhood my mum would we grew up in Melbourne and we you know we go to places like Emu Bottom and Ripon Lee and Como House and you know and or to you know Ballarat and all those sort of places and they're really evocative um, and then when I moved to Sydney you know, I just roam around the rocks and just imagine what life mm. was like so I, I guess somehow it was instilled in me in my youth where the food side of it came from I don't know my mother was a 1960s 70s convenience cook everything was out of a packet, it was dinner winner, it was tang orange drink. It was that's probably a good enough reason. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I was sort of on this sort of um, mission to sort of to teach myself uh, how to cook. So the Le Cordon Bleu qualification is not in, in cookery. I'm not a chef. Mm-hmm. I call myself an experimental cook or a curious cook. Um, there's a lot of curatorial dis- cook. Possibly, there's a lot of disasters, a lot of trial and error. Um, but they they do a master's degree in gastronomy, which is sort of again all that uh, food history, but also food culture and sort of contemporary and the past. Is there much interest in that in Australia and around the world? That area? It's growing and growing. So, I, you know, I guess the I think it started in the early two thousands, and now there are there are institutions throughout the world now that are doing that yeah. t- that type of degree, some I, food studies. We were talking earlier about sort of food and history and how. Obviously, so much of what we eat is actually historical, you know, recipes from grandparents and and in turn from their grandparents and things you see and read and so on. But 
I've never thought about it historically, that these cakes would have been made in the 1950s or the 1920s or the 1850s. Um, It's not something that's really, we're not necessarily historically conscious about food. That's right. And I think I see that sort of as part of my job to get us to think about the food we eat now and realise either the differences or the similarities that take us to the past. There's really nothing in the supermarket that you know, people didn't have. Mm. Um, there's a lot more variety and a lot more multicultural, of course, in Australia. But, you know, pretty much, you know, the, look at the, at the soft drink aisle, you know, raspberry cordial, raspberry pink lemonade, mm. you know, people were making that with real raspberries, <laughs> um, you know, back in the day. And, those, and, and you know, ginger beer was exploding. Yeah, <laughs> in, my in grandmother's cupboard was exploding regularly with ginger beer. But that's kind of um, a, a really important point in that we've started to think about where our food comes from, so spatially about food across, you know, space. But you're trying to do the same thing across time. Yeah, that's right. And I think it, I was, I think they said uh, the other day on the Gruen Transfer, there was something like 75,000 different products in a supermarket, whereas, you know, during the, in the early 1900s, there were maybe 250. Wow. You know, and of course, all those things are made probably from 80 ingredients really you know sure. it's, it's your, your sort of fundamental basics and you look at some of the you know humble cookbooks from our collections for example at Susanna Place in the rocks you know it was their very sort of humble terrace houses and some people you know kept the cookbook they they used at school for the rest of their lives but if you go through the ingredients they're very simple and basic and yet you can make an extraordinary range of things from mm. those basic ingredients we, we say we're cooking from scratch now but so much of the work is already Done. done for. Mm. And what's the best thing about your job? <laughs> oh, gosh, that's really hard. Oh, look, I love that you're glam. I mean, I, I get the best of all those worlds. So, um, you know, gallery and gallery spaces, of course, are really inspiring. Uh, but, you know, libraries and archives, I'm a real bit of a nerd. Mm. I'm doing a PhD as well. So I get a real buzz from those primary sources, those Mm. primary accounts, whether that's in the sort of object tactile sense or just the language they use. I'm a bit addicted to that sort of late uh, 18th century Georgian languages and things from our First Fleet journals. And, you know, then, of course, the museums themselves. And the chocolate puddings. Well, not so much chocolate, but a lot of fruitcake. And luckily, I do mm. like fruitcake. <laughs> mm. You know, and again, it's that sense of place. You know, you go into those kitchens, you, you look around, and it's not just the kitchen. You look at the floor, and you realise how many people have worked here, and you can see the, the the wear and tear on the areas where someone has stood in front of the stove, and yet elsewhere, you know, the, the, the floor is sort of an inch higher. <laughs> so you really get that sense of of people have walked these halls in the past, and you know, feel really connected to that. So it's both the production element of food as well as the consumption. Yeah, I actually think I'm more interested in the process, the the production side of it, um, the more I look into things. And that's where for our blog, The Cook and the Curator, Scott Hill, my colleague, is the curator where I'm the cook. And, you know, he's he's far more object-driven. You know, he he can really open up whole new worlds just from looking, you know, studying a particular object, a chair, you know, or a plate, whereas I'm more about the process that people had to go through to to put something on the table. Do you think you have to be a good cook to be a historical gastronomer? Well, you can't. Well, I can't. I'm not. So... Uh, and you know we're not doing this for restaurants. Maybe or more a scientist else. in a way, or a, or a kind of historical. I call it forensics. Yeah, you know, it's a sort of historical forensics, going back through those processes and trying as much as possible to use those those old techniques. So they are very manual. You know, one of the one of I think one of my sort of favourite examples is um, at Marugal, which was a sort of very genteel household of of unmarried women or widowed women. 
but they didn't have enough money to have servants or anything like that. So they'd get up at the crack of dawn, do all their housework and then have a genteel day. But that also included entertaining and they made all their own cakes and biscuits and things. And they've got beautiful handwritten little ledger books where they've copied recipes out and they pass them through the the generations. But they serve a very plain sponge cake with, you know, no icing, no cream and strawberries or any of these things. Um, And that was their, that was their, um, sort of signature dish, the marugal sponge, and there's various iterations of it in various um, handwritings and things. These days, you know, with Freons and cannolis and Zumbo macarons and things, you can't imagine a plain sponge being the hero of, of the afternoon tea table. You know, and you can buy a sponge at Coles for $5 and it's all about how you then dress it up. It's not about the quality of the cake itself. But when you know that those women beat the hand beat the egg, separated the eggs that they had read themselves, looked after the chooks, fed them the whole thing, of course, and then beat the egg whites on a flat dinner plate with a knife for 20 minutes. It takes 20 minutes to, to get Hi, the six why not a fork? eggs. Well, you try it at home. There's a little, you know, listener challenge there for people. The the fork, if you think about the tines, the, the white slips through the, the, mm. the gaps. The knife actually lifts. You want air. So it's actually lifting the egg up off the plate to get air into it. And after 20 minutes, you should be able to hold the plate upside down and it won't oh. fall off. But it is actually a lot of work. It's some yes. upper body strength. It sure yeah. is. So, But then, you know, so there's a lot of... And meanwhile, the other sister is sifting the flour and mixing the sugar and the, and, and the yolks, possibly with a fork. But, you know, when you realise the personal investment in that single cake you get a much different appreciation for it and a much different value mm. for it. And I think that's something for us to reflect on in our food today. You know, we're running around grabbing lunch and, you know, grabbing a coffee and, you know, grab some breakfast. We don't really think about what's grown that food, what's brought it to us. We're very lucky that we'll be contemplating the Marugal sponge later this morning because our very tireless producer was whipping using a knife on a dinner plate for about four hours last night (laughs) and has created one for us to try in the studio a little later. (laughs) Glam City, what's on for history in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and your favourite podcast app. So how do you know about these techniques? What's the way you find out? First of all, it's a lot of reading. So, you know, I'll come across old cookbooks or old recipes or sometimes old menus. Uh, And then if I hear about a dish that, you know, I haven't made before or recognised before, then I'll I'll go through published cookbooks, sometimes the internet, and, and then try them out at home literally so sometimes they work and sometimes they don't but do you try it out like going okay so what has this person got access to they've got a fork and a knife well well, an electric beater (laughs) that's right well see and and that's where you get those small details you don't get those details in the written word we tend to get them from oral histories Mm. so it is a matter of bringing all those resources together um, it's you know it's published work. It's 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 um, memoirs. But sometimes you even pick up techniques in novels and things because you know the arc the the sort of historical documents don't. You know when do we write down? You might say, look, I made a birthday cake today, but you wouldn't say I made it with you know this particular gadget and that particular gadget. It's just assumed knowledge. Um, but sometimes in historical novels or period, you know, from the period Jane Austen or whatever it is. They do set scenes, and if they're writing in that contemporary time, they're sort of saying, you know, she was standing at the sink, you know, peeling this or doing that or, or whatever. So, you, ha- you you know, become a little bowel bird. You pick things up from wherever you can. 
And, um, you know, then I said, as I say, try them out at home. And often what you read, once you actually do it, it's a very, very sort of enlightening an enlightening thing, you know. Do you have any Pinterest fails for your uh, <laughs> creations? Uh, there might be a few on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my poor family's had to have a lot of, um, you know, uh, yeah, experimental guinea pig <laughs> sort of opportunities. But again, it's, a, it's not always about the, the, you know, the taste or how it looks. For me, it is really about that that process mm. and understanding. Um, you know, so sometimes it is a bit of food science as well. You know, why does it behave that way? It's a bit of alchemy mm. going Have on. Have tastes as well. changed a lot? Do you think? Oh, definitely. I think our tastes have become so sweet, so so sugar calibrated. Um, that tastes have changed. When you look at um, you know pickling and things are all the rage at the moment, and you look at um, you know people for uh, recipes for pickling cabbage or um, onions or gherkins or whatever. There's almost no sugar in them. So they'll have, you know, vinegar, maybe a little bit of water and then some spices and, and salt and then no sugar whatsoever. Whereas now if you had, you know, your, your beet tin of beetroot or your pickled onions, if you look at the label, there's almost 50-50 right. vinegar and sugar. So, you know, we love that sweet sour flavour, but the, the our, our palates are, are far more calibrated to I mean, that raises, raises a very interesting historical question about experience. And if, you know, you're trying to recreate the experience of taste in the past, if our palates are so conditioned by the present that, you know, a pickled beetroot from the past is going to taste entirely different to our sweetened the palate custom to, to sweet tastes than, than those in the... So we can't ever really be in their shoes in the way... No, well, we you know we might taste that un- unsugared one or you know really minimal sugared one, and you know our eyes will sting and it's like whoa, and you you know you might not enjoy it, but that doesn't mean they weren't enjoying it in the past because they were used to those, you know those piquant flavors, and they looked for those piquant flavors. Exactly. So so what tastes enjoyable for us is not necessarily what tastes enjoyable for them. So we're ex- where our experience of that food is perhaps a distaste, whereas theirs would, would be something they sort. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the flip side of that is now so much of our food is industrialised and, and I think we've lost some of those, you know, integral natural flavours. You know, like chicken's a classic example. Chicken is now a blank canvas. You know, it, when when a chicken was, you know, naturally raised and, and, and fed scraps, they've got a completely different flavour and, and texture. And, oh, you know... The sort of more industrial ones are sort of moister and sweeter, but they don't have their own natural flavours. So we now add flavours. You know, if you think, look, mm. you know, we, we we add spices and, you know, we want Moroccan this and Mexican that. We can have a different flavour for our chicken every night of the week. But in earlier times where it was a little bit more monocultural and people would say plain, that doesn't mean boring because the food itself had its own flavour. There was more integrity in the actual raw material. When I was growing up, my mum, who grew up in uh, the Southern Highlands, uh, when I was a kid, she, I remember her saying, oh, you know, apples today, they're just so rubbish. They don't take, you know, when I was a young girl, the apples, you wouldn't believe it. You'd be falling off your chair. And I thought, oh, ho-hum, yeah, whatever, mum. But what you're saying is true, that sort of mass industrialisation mm. of food production has actually changed the taste so that apples are now picked not ripe. And also, and chickens would have, uh, you know, 
um, were reared in your home on your food scraps and would have tasted gamey and so on. Mm. So why don't we take this a little step further back into some colonial times. Mm -hmm. What do you think, if these tastes are changing and and people's ways of preparing have changed so much, what were the favourite foods of our early settlers and convicts? For our very early settlers, Mm. well, they didn't, you know, we would like to think they didn't have much choice. They just had their rations, you know, which were pretty, you know, to our taste, pretty rudimentary and probably monotonous and repetitive because you got the same thing week after week. So that was salted beef or pork, um, dried peas. But, you know, immediately there you have sort of pea and ham soup, Mm -hmm. you know, what we would now call a winter comfort food. That would have been, you know, a staple. Uh, Flour uh, and... um, Salt. Sugar? Oh, well, the meat was salted, so you oh. didn't really necessarily need it. That's right, and they were given butter as well, but, of course, the butter was pretty rancid, so they stopped doing that after a while and did give them some sugar. You know, as I was saying about the few ingredients in the supermarket, you know, there are actually quite a lot of things you can do that. With your flour, you can make bread, obviously, but you could also make dumplings, you can make pancakes. People would have had their own, maybe not all the convicts, but people. a lot of convicts were living in very sort of domestic situations. They would have had chooks and and eggs and or gone fishing or oh, gathered. Well, well, that's the other side of it. So they didn't just they weren't limited just to their rations. They foraged. They actively foraged in the um, bushland. Tea was not on the rations list, but the first fleet, you know, early early fleets foraged in the bush for a, a native sarsaparilla, and made tea with that. You know, they they we we bring our own food culture with us, and then we try and adapt that. Or we have to adapt that to what we find around us. So, you know, when they were eating kangaroo, for example, they called it venison, kangaroo venison. They raved about all the fish in the harbour. You know, the variety and that sort of thing, and the you know cockles, the mussels, the the oysters. You know, they could go foraging uh, for those quite readily, and they had a lot of free time once they'd done their task work, their government hours. They were they were free to do their own thing. You know, they weren't locked in a jail so I think there was a lot of uh, you know very a lot of they were very resourceful game birds and things like that if you'd come from England you would get arrested for poaching but here you could go out and you know catch possums and and Mm. birds and and all sorts of things and I think there was a bit of trading also probably happening with Aboriginal people catching fish you know that sort of thing I mean were they taking notice of what Indigenous peoples were eating definitely yes very curious but a lot of the Aboriginal um, techniques were far too labouring intensive for the settlers to to bother about you know why would you dig up a yam dry it you know you have to uh, detoxify it by leaching it through you know running it through water and then you have to pound it you know and dry it to end up with a a sort of meal well they had their own flour so why would you go through all that (laughs) they're sort of doing what we were doing today all that processing had been done for them so after a while you actually find aboriginal people coming to the settlement and getting ready-made flour and bread and, and saving themselves that effort So there was too. a food exchange going on? There was, definitely, yes. By 1790, that was happening. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Glam City. That's all one word. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. Now, we're talking with Jackie Newling about uh, heritage food in Australia and food says so much about a society at any point in time. What is your favourite historical dish and why? 
as far as eating it or just it's genius? It's genius. <laughs> I think that'll be more <laughs> exciting to hear. Maybe both. Oh, yeah. Oh, look, there's a dish. And again, I think it's because it's quintessentially colonial Australian. It has to be the kangaroo steamer. Just the name sounds fascinating. Is that a kangaroo in a steamer? Or a st- so the, the steaming is the cooking process. Right. It's sort of like a, a, it's really sort of a, a boiling process. You don't cook it in the kangaroo? No. You cook- <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't tried that one, no. Like, again, as I said, the people bring their own, you know, food habits, their own f- understanding of what food is to a place, and then they adapt it to the local ingredients. So, but it's also very, they're also very practical. So they have their salt pork already as part of their rations and it doesn't need refrigeration. You can roam around for, you know, months with your little, you know, tub of pork. Um, But then you can catch a fresh kangaroo. So by combining the two, you have um, a little bit like we might make a casserole where you might start uh, cooking with your bacon or pancetta or whatever it is to get those flavours through and then you add fresh meat. So they did exactly that. They chopped up the, uh, the salted pork, then they put the kangaroo into slices in layers they'd put some wine or you know stock or whatever in in the pot so whatever herbs and vegetables they had going onions and things and then put the lid on and then just boil it sort of like boil in the bag really (laughs) sort of cookery for quite a long time you can either eat it hot um, like that or you can let it go cold and then it's like a terrine mm. you know like a you know so people go oh that sounds really weird but once you put it into sort of terms that are understood now it it, um, it makes sense so um, the kangaroo steamer was being talked about by about the 1820s and you know sort of bushman's food uh, but lady jane franklin was served kangaroo steamer when she visited uh, port arthur in the, in the late uh, 1830s, that would have been. I'm sure she had an opinion about that. Well, that's... that's Lady Franklin was one <laughs> she liked. She actually said it was quite good. So there you are. <laughs> so, you know, discerning tastes. But again, you know, it, it very, you know, people, people are practical. They do things for a reason. And the steaming process, they would have done that back at home with hair. So another game meat jugged hair you might have, um, we're so talking were, rabbit people yeah, yeah. <laughs> hair is in rabbit that's we are <laughs> so how did these techniques become lost how do we forget them oh, i actually think that comes down to sort of social aspiration for example something like rabbit people kept rabbit as a culinary resource you know they kept their own little hutches um, they kept their pigeons and things like that you know for the table but of course once they became feral and everybody could have one and it was just, you know, what you, you know, poor people ate. They lost their prestige. So people lost interest in them. They were, a, they became a secondary food. So within, you know, 50 years, a rabbit curry was in, could have been in pride of place mm. on, on quite a, well, you know, a wealthy man's table in the sort of early 1800s. By the late 1800s, that was, that was just feral food. That was, you know, mm. that, that was mm. what, what poor people ate. So, you know, we, we are quite an aspirational society and I think we're always looking for new and better. And I think that's, that's been characteristic of us right from the word go as far as, you know, our, our sort of colonial heritage goes, always trying to better ourselves somehow. And, and, you know, then the wartime came. So tongue is another example. So tongue was on wedding banquet tables. It was on the ball when um, Prince Edward came out in the 1920s, the one that had to advocate for uh, Wallace Simpson, you know, there was turkey, ham and tongue. But 
tongue was not rationed during the Second World War. It was, you know, it couldn't really be preserved and kept. It wasn't really valued for, by the Americans at that stage. A lot of our meat was going to feed the American forces. So, you know, after the war was over, well, why should we eat that? We've been eating that for the last 10 years in misery. We want, we want steak. We want, mm. you know, fillets. You know, we want, we want the best mm. meat. So it, it dropped away. Tongue and rabbit were both on my grandparents' dinner table. I remember as a little kid looking at the tongue, jelly tongue. <laughs> it's a little confronting yeah. for us. But yeah. again, that's a difference, you know, visually. You know, our food, it's hard sometimes to even get something on the bone. Yeah, that's right. Um, everything's filleted, the skin's been taken off, It's you know, the... the the chops have been Frenched. And, and I and, guess and a different uh, population or a different different habits of acquiring food. So my grandparents would have went out and shot rabbits because they were a pest and it was a cheap meal, I suppose. Whereas nowadays, I wouldn't do that necessarily. Yeah. Well, now rabbits are being farmed again. We've gone the full yeah. circle and they're over $20 a kilo. Now it so, can be hip. Yeah. To buy a rabbit is probably $25, which you'll, you know, our grandparents mm. would be horrified. Mm. I guess oysters is the same story. Yeah. From becoming a you know a, a, a food of the poor to yes, now yes three dollars an oyster yeah two quart two quarts of oysters so that's two liters was cheaper than a dozen eggs in eighteen ten get into your time traveling mm. pods everybody <laughs> uh, what historical culinary delights can people experience at Sydney Living Museums and we'll talk about some of the exhibitions and so on as well. Yeah, we do um, a series of colonial gastronomy programs in our houses. Obviously, there are colonial um, houses, so Vaucluse House, Elizabeth Bay House, Elizabeth Farm, um, and Rouse Hill House and Farm. And, um, you know, they, they sort of, they're themed, so we might have, you know, jelly or, you know, we did a Regency breakfast from, a, from an 1812 menu the other day at um, Elizabeth Bay House. So, you know, they're quite sort of hands-on and, and uh, immersive. And you come away learning a few new techniques, you know, you might make your own butter or, or something like that. But then we also, you know, we also have twice a year a seasonal harvest festival. So Rouse Hill, we do a, an autumn harvest and we get local producers and, and talks and, you know, people who are breeding heritage chickens or, you know, eggs the old fashioned way will come and give tastings and talks and things like that. So it's quite varied. What's the, pardon the pun, appetite for this kind of historical information Look, in the public. It's very strong and you know people to me people are coming you know there's lots of reasons to visit a museum you know it could just be because you need some quiet time or you wanted to catch up with a friend do something different but food seems to you know well I'm full of terrible food puns you know there's a real appetite for history out mm. there so food is often the invitation look come and see you know there's a food festival on but at the same time you can experience these places in a way that you might you know, not normally. So, you know, we have a tendency to think, oh, look, I've been to a you know, particular museum, tick, that's done, on to the next thing. Uh, but we interpret our museums so many different ways at Sydney Living Museums. There's all sorts of different reasons to come and food's just one of them. But people do seem genuinely interested in immersing themselves in those spaces and, and experiencing food in a different context. Is there a nostalgia for going back and thinking about how, you know, food sort of, you know, food's... Uh, sort of really piques the senses and I suppose is um, my yeah. question is is there a desire for people to go back and experience what it might have been like when they were a kid or what their parents might yeah, have enjoyed? Yeah, look I think the, the nostalgic thing is, you know, the heartstrings things is, is a bit naff in some ways. But you know, just in that conversation, you know, we were having you were saying, oh, I remember my grand you know, mm. parents, you know, ate tongue and, and some people don't even think about that 
until they're reminded, you know, that they'll come across an object or a, or a taste or a smell that suddenly takes them back somewhere and it'll unlock their own food memories. And I think that idea of, you know, people do want to see themselves in history. It's not, it is another country, but it's not foreign. It's a narcissistic you know. one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can be. And, you know, I think people do want to feel that physical and emotional connection to the past. And food is one way of doing that. I tell you what, I want to feel a physical connection to that sponge cake that has been sitting there. This is the Marugal heirloom sponge that um, our producer Emma has made and we've been looking at it for the last 25 minutes. And My tummy has actually been rumbling and I've had to keep it away from the microphone. <laughs> I think I heard it. <laughs> you ready? Ready. Wow. That's pretty good. Oh, that looks lovely, amazing. Lovely crumb. Look at the colour as well. Is that, that about the that's eggs? That's from the eggs, yes. Yeah. Sounds like you're chopping it with an axe, Tamsin. <laughs> Very delicate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Emma. Let's talk wow. about eating. You are a historical goddess. Does it actually taste good? Mm. 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 It tastes like sponge. Mm. If I was walking through the country to outside and I stopped in at this house of these aspirational family, I would have been very happy to get this cake. It is it is dense though, isn't it? Like it is much more dense than the ones we buy. Mm. You know, which are, you know, again, bulk, air, mm. all that sort of thing. You're probably paying for mm. a lot of that. Whereas, you know, you sort of, yeah, this is a lot heartier. And sweet. It is quite sweet. It's got flavour. You don't mm. need to put jam on it. That's what it tastes like, egg, or custard almost. Mm. Yes, that's right. And, you know, again, it will um, not keep probably as long as bought sponge because it doesn't have the sort of, you know, additives and preservatives and things. Just eat it. Yeah, or it makes fantastic... Um, a trifle or something like that. You can oh, see, yeah. why, you know. Yeah. Really Apparently, good. this recipe was found between the pages of an old family cookbook. Yes. So there are many iterations of, of this recipe. It's been copied out in various forms. Uh, it's in the sort of family manuscript cookbook, along with many other recipes. It was also found in another cookbook on another slip of paper. And again, little annotations about, you know, it says use lemon juice, but you, you know, orange juice. You know, it's more interesting mm. and, and those like sort of Like Madeira things. cake or something. Yeah, and, and you know, the, it, I love the annotations in these handwritten books because, you know, for example, one of the recipes, I think it was a shortbread, said if you don't have caster sugar, run your sugar through the mangle between two pieces of paper. <laughs> of course we can all do that. <laughs> um, you know, so <laughs> little, sort of, little sort of helpful notes, people, you know, whoever they were writing the recipe out for, they wanted it to work. They, they wanted, yeah. you know, they wanted to... Um, they kind of have iterations and on. generations, don't they, these recipes? Yeah, and, and you know, they keep that connection to, to those pasts. So if, if anybody does have an old cookbook at home of their mother's or grandmother's, you know, look at it with different eyes and sort of treasure it and, you know, try something out of it and get a taste of, the, of their lives. Every Christmas, I insist on making my grandmother's carrot and pineapple jelly oh. salad. <laughs> oh, wow. Salad, in inverted commas. <laughs> Which every single member of the family hate, except I just I cannot I cannot let this thing go. But it's sort of an equivalent for cranberry. You know, it's a sweet thing to go uh, against the meat. I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, grated carrot, pineapple, and jelly. Wow. Can't go wrong. <laughs> Sounds like a location situation. You've got to be there. <laughs> um, glam, glam slam, people. We got a glam slam. This is where we say what's in our diaries. 
What's coming up for you? I'm getting pretty excited about our annual whale festival. It's an Aboriginal cultural festival we hold at Vaucluse House each year. And um, this is where, you know, Aboriginal people come and perform a traditional ceremony down on the beach. Vaucluse House goes all the way down to the bay. Uh, And then there are lots of other, you know, demonstrations and tastings. We're having a a, a cultural cook-off where, you know, some fresh fish wrapped in. Brilliant wrapped in leaves and and done on the coals and then I'm inside the colonial kitchen making the whalers chowder so people come have a tasting of that. Fantastic. Clarky. I am going to be heading to the Sydney Living Museum's annual Christmas fair on Thursday the 14th of December and I'm hoping to pick up a couple of maybe historical culinary delights for my own Christmas Mm. hamper. What What can one get at the Christmas fair? Well, apparently you can get handmade produce, artisan wares. Um, There's a fair in there and it's at the Hyde Park Barracks on Thursday the 14th of December from 4 to 9pm with a gold coin entry and you can find out more from the Sydney Living Museum's webpage. Well that, with a very Christmassy air, brings us to the end of our first series of Glam City. So thank you for coming Jackie and being our final guest. It was fun to be here. Oh, it was fun to have you. I tell you what. <laughs> yes, and if you want to uh, see photos that the cake was actually tasted and enjoyed and also uh, grab a copy of the recipe for yourself, head to the Australian Centre for Public History Facebook page. Facebook page and indeed homepage. Uh, where we'll also put them up. But thank you for listening. Uh, Come back next year when we will launch with a whole new series of Glam City, bigger and better than ever. If you want to uh, send us a note or if you want to be on the show, uh, email us at glamcity at 2ser.com. And a big thanks to our producer, Emma Lancaster, for all her work uh, this year. Over and out. Glam out. (laughs) 